driving innovation from the C-suite, today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Grotto. In 2021, the first report of our Healthcare 2030 series looked at the changing role of the CFO. And today's episode focuses on a key aspect of that topic, communication and innovation as the role evolves. Payman Zand, Vice President of Advisory at Saracor, is here to talk about that. Before we get to that interview, it's time to find out what's happening in healthcare finance news. Now, typically in this segment, you hear from our policy director, Sean Stack, but he was unable to join us for recording today. So I am excited to be talking with senior editor, Nick Hutt, about some of the things that he's been covering at hfma.org. Hey, Nick. Hello, and, and uh, thanks, Erica. Yeah, there have been a few pretty interesting topics recently. One is that as reported back in June, and as Sean and I discussed in this segment, the Supreme Court ruled unanimously that the lower rate Medicare had been paying for drugs purchased through the 340B drug pricing program had been established impermissibly. Now, in late September, a judge at the district court level ruled that the lower rate must be terminated not at the start of 2023, like CMS had been planning, but immediately, as in (laughs) immediately. So if your hospital buys drugs through 340B, you should be seeing almost a 30% hike in payments for Medicare right now. The same court still needs to rule on the form of remedies for hospitals, given the Supreme Court ruling that the rate never should have been lowered in the manner it was. So that's a pending decision that a lot of people are watching. Something else that you've been reporting on lately is new regulations and enforcement around information blocking, which is a topic that we've talked about on the podcast before. But what's happening today, Nick? Yeah, so expanded information blocking rules under the 21st Century Cures Act have gone into effect by the time you're all listening to this. Hospitals, among other providers and other stakeholders, such as health information exchanges and health IT developers, are prohibited from engaging in any action that would inhibit access to or the exchange or use of healthcare data by patients and by other stakeholders who may be involved in a patient's episode of care. Uh, The goal is to improve interoperability and probably even more importantly, patient access to their health data. Now, some regulations have been in place for the last 18 months or so, but the type of data that's protected has now been expanded to include basically anything and everything in a patient's record. Uh, That could include claims, billing records, et cetera. But one thing we still don't know is what the penalty for violations will be for providers. We still have not gotten regulations on that after all this time. A proposed rule called for a maximum $1 million penalty per violation for developers and health information exchanges, but did not address penalties for providers. So that's still up in the air. Finally, we've got some developments in surprise billing, and it feels a little strange to be talking about it without Sean here, uh, as he is the foremost authority on the topic, at least here at HFMA. But there have been some recent developments worth discussing. What's happening there? Yeah, for sure. I wish Sean were here to opine on this, but you may remember that the Texas Medical Association prevailed in a case earlier this year about the criteria used in a new arbitration process that's available to decide out-of-network payments between providers and health plans. Uh, The same association has now gone to court again, saying the revised criteria in the final rule still weigh too heavily in favor of health plans in a way that deviates from legislative intent. Uh, They have the support of the American Hospital Association and the American Medical Association, among others. 
And they're just hoping that arbitration cases can be decided by giving equal weight as appropriate to factors other than the median in-network payment rate, i.e. the qualifying payment amount. The new final rule did go in that direction somewhat, but not to the degree providers thought it should have. So, Nick, if people want to read about these topics or any of the other topics that you're covering, where will they find your coverage? They can find it at hfma.org slash news and hfma.org slash blog. And I'm looking forward to returning in a couple of weeks with Sean. We've got a uh, very weighty topic to discuss. I hope everybody tunes in for that. All right. Well, thank you very much, Nick. Thanks, Erica. The role of the CFO has been evolving over the last several years. And with that evolution, the interactions between the CFO and others in the C-suite has likewise changed. According to my guest today, these changes can actually help healthcare organizations strategize in new ways. Payman Zand is the Vice President of Advisory at Seracor, and he spoke with me recently about how the alignment in the C-suite is helping drive innovation. Yeah, I think what we have seen over the past few years is that all business enablements involve IT, obviously. And that makes the CFOs more aligned with physician group, other departments, other business units. And in fact, it makes the CIOs more aligned with those same business groups as well. And so I think what happens with that is a couple of three things. They move away from the departmental level prioritization to more of an enterprise level prioritization. And that, by the way, helps the uh, other business leaders, whether it's clinicians or other department leads, to also make sure that their projects and their initiatives are better aligned to enterprise because of that reason. We've seen it also have moved more into the enterprise level uh, governance. And it's, a lot of times it's metrics driven. Now, I have seen in some cases it's not metrics driven. It is still somewhat subjective uh, governance models. Uh, so that is one thing that they can still improve on. But what's missing really in the middle of all of this is the assessment of the organization to be able to execute on these investments, on these projects. And I think that's one thing that they really need to take a look at. So for example, a major IT project gets approved, goes through all of the appropriate processes, but then during the execution, they fail for whatever reason. And then finally, what I've seen is also some of the key performance indicators that are missing. So metrics, especially after the project is rolled out or even during, you know, what are some of the metrics that we're using to measure that. So there's a, there's a couple of areas that I think we can still improve on. But in general, because of that business enablement that I talked about, it allowed the uh, CFOs, CIOs, and other business leaders to be much more aligned over the past few years. What are some things that these executives would need to improve upon then in order to perform better in their role with these changes? How can they better serve, I guess, their organization with these new relationships? I think one of the things they can do is, back to one of the comments I made, is to really ask the CIOs and, in general, other business unit leaders, how invested are they in the project or in those initiatives? Meaning that, do they have the right resources that they can assign? 
are they able to endure the challenges that are coming about for the next two to three years or whatever the length of that project is? Are they able to substantiate the value of these projects and then manage those return on investments, not only after the project goes live, but for a duration afterwards? Because those are the types of things, those are the kinds of questions that really need to be answered. And this is where the CFOs can really help other organizations to start thinking about that. And that really increases and improves the chances of success for the entire organization, but also the CFOs, the CIOs, and other business leaders that are coming up with some of these. Uh, because we, we do this all the time, right? We come up with good ideas. We come up with brilliant ideas that helps scale the business, find growth opportunities, but then we don't look at it critically all the way through to see if we're able to actually execute on all of those. And I think that's really the key is I would say, I'll go back to the execution. Execution is everything. It's job one, basically. Let's talk about innovation for a second. I think, you know, we we talk a lot about innovating within health systems. I think that any of our members would say that's what they want to do. There are a lot of barriers to that, but how does the structure of the C-suite make a difference? Is it in the execution or is there more to it? One of the things we've learned is that innovation in a vacuum doesn't work, meaning that innovation works within the context of the operation. So uh, years ago, Harvard Business Review actually published an article, I think it was early 2000s, that talked about operational innovation. And what they specifically recommended was to make sure that those innovation centers are part of the operation. Because once they're in a vacuum or in an enclave by themselves, they're separated from what's happening on a day-to-day basis within the organization. So we need to get them back together. So that's number one. The other items that I've seen that's helpful in this process is when we do those organizations that do staff rotation. You know, we've always had business finance leaders or purchasing leaders, et cetera, be assigned to IT. But rather than being assigned to IT, meaning still part of the CFO's organization, they get assigned and they work as part of the IT organization. Vice versa, some of the IT organization staff members work in the supply chain, work in the CFO's organization, work with the clinicians and on a day-to-day basis, reporting to them, et cetera, they'll still have a dotted line or some kind of a matrix organization back to their original one. But that rotation helps them understand the other part much better and vice versa. Those are a couple of things that I would say. A couple of other items that I would uh, mention is, you know, leaders should always look for removing constraining barriers for innovation. So that's something that, that they can help each other with. And then finally, I would say, look for models that are outside of the healthcare organization. Sometimes we get a little bit pigeonholed within the healthcare industry only. So look what other industries are doing. And are there some applicable, innovative ideas that we can actually bring back into healthcare? That's really healthy. And it helps a lot of the organizations spur their innovation much faster and better. How can healthcare leaders best work together to maximize innovation while staying on top of their many, many, many other organizational and financial priorities? A couple of thoughts on that one. I would say that in many cases, how they can help each other is to build a stronger relationship with each other using some of these special cases that we just talked about. So for example, 
an amazing thing happened when the pandemic hit. We moved the telehealth much faster than we had moved it in the past 10 or 20 years. We were able to, within weeks, basically, stand up a robust telehealth environment so we can actually manage patients, get paid for the work that we've done, help them achieve whatever they needed to achieve, et cetera. That required the CFO's organization, the uh, CIO's organization, the chief medical officer's organization, nursing, et cetera. All of these different groups came together. Why? Because they had a single purpose alignment in that drive to roll out telehealth. So I think we should leverage those types of opportunities to find out what else can we do to have better alignment. And remember early on, I also talked about moving away from departmental level prioritization to enterprise level prioritization. And that ensures that our department level goals are aligned to the enterprise. And that's one of the ways to do it. But I think the other couple of things that I would say is really helpful is make sure that you're agile in the implementation. And so we talked about governance and sometimes governance can be too complicated and get in the way of our progress as well. So make sure that those governance are streamlined. They're looking at the right things. They have the right metrics and they're not standing in the way of the implementation of these innovative ideas. So remove any barriers again, as we mentioned before as well. So that agility matters. And then I think the last thing that they can do, probably a few more things, but the last thing that I can think of right now is making this tracking of the return on investment, everybody's business, not just CFOs, not just the CIOs, but everybody's business so that they are all keeping an eye on those. And by the way, if we are not getting the results that we wanted to get, it's okay. The agile organization stops the projects that are not working and then starts projects that do working or keeps them going. So we want to stop the ones that are not providing dividend or providing what we thought was is going to uh, provide for the company or the patients or the positions, et cetera. You know, I think about telehealth in the early pandemic and you're right. I mean, it's astounding how quickly things move. How easy would it be to agree upon something that needs to happen in that way again? Because with telehealth, it was pretty obvious what we needed to do. If we were shutting things down, we needed to provide care somehow. I think everyone sort of came together with that common goal because it was an obvious one at the time. But if you're just kind of in business as usual mode, how do you rally around something if, if it's not obvious which priority to make the priority? Yeah, good question, Eric. I think the first thing that organizations need to do is to take a look and see why they're taking on a project, for example. So let's just say that we are in the process of making a request for a $50 million ERP upgrade. That's a huge amount of money, big undertaking. And the question should be asked, why are we taking that? Why are we doing this thing? When we start asking the whys, that's when we start getting to a lot better alignment. And, and so if the answer really is, well, we are missing the proper inventory or we're missing some surgical equipment getting to the right places at the right time, or we're not getting to the uh, result that we need from a financial perspective, et cetera, let's put those as the requirement. So long before we pick a project, let's take a look at business issues that we have. Let's talk about those business issues and all together come to an alignment that th these are the business problems that we need to solve before we pick a project. 
So flip the script rather than picking saying, well, we need to upgrade our ERP or we need to upgrade our EIHR or whatever the case is. Let's take a look at the business problems that we're having. Make sure that everybody's on alignment on those. And then once that's done, then we can decide, okay, do we really need an ERP replacement or do we just need a bolt-on product that actually solves these one or two problems that we have? And I think that's what's missing really in, in that is that we are not aligned. All of a sudden, the CFO sees this $50 million budget item come in and now they have to figure out, okay, why? What are we trying to solve? Why are we going to spend the money? And, and so they're doing it kind of post request coming into their office. And uh, and if we were aligned better, that would have been obvious to them to begin with. That's a really good point. It almost feels like human nature. We want to skip to what is the project because we want the results, right? We want to solve the problem rather than discuss and dissect the problem. But that's not necessarily the best, the best way to go about it. Yeah. A few years ago, I was thinking that I needed a new car. And I was talking to this mechanic friend of mine that works on my car. And he said, what's the problem with that? I said, well, you know, things are going bad. He said, you know what? I can replace this, this, and this for you for this amount of money. You're still tens of thousands of dollars less than a brand new car. So keep it. I'll fix it for you. So that's what I did. It's the same thing. So define the problem rather than coming up with all of a sudden this grandiose project that we want to go, go do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's easier said than done when you're sitting around the table, but um, certainly something to keep in mind as you're trying to tackle the many issues in in healthcare, no matter what it is. But alignment, it seems like a good place to start. So, Payman Zan, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is the Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. If you haven't been in the online community lately, now is a great time to check it out. You can join forums based on denials management, rural health, no surprises compliance, membership resources, and so many more. You can talk with your fellow members and connect with others who might be facing similar challenges or who can offer advice. Just go to hfma.org and click community. And of course, if you want to connect with the podcast team, you can email us at podcast at hfma.org. I think I've said my piece on that.